Hey, good to see all of you. Uh, my name is Jay, and I am on staff here at Awakening. Um, it's fun. This is fun. I was telling the first service uh, how much fun this is. We've done no serve, no service service before, but this is the first time here at uh, Del Mar, and first time, obviously, here in the cafeteria. And it's just, I feel like I want to hand you all those rectangular pizzas that tasted like cardboard. I just, I want to put those in front of you because we're sitting here at these cafeteria tables, but it's so much fun. Um, tonight we're starting a, a brand new series. I think I feel like I'm a little hot. Awesome. Thanks. You know what I mean. <laughs> Are we good? Check, check. Hey, that's good. That'll be really nice for the podcast, actually. Um, tonight we're kicking off a brand new series called Sink or Swim. And here's the deal. Um, for us as Christians, the reality is this. Uh, I believe that we have been invited into much more um, than we might think. Um, that I believe that God has more for you, both individually and us collectively, than we might actually realize. I want to tell you a story. There's a man named Louis Pugh, and some of you guys have heard this name before. Louis Pugh is, amongst many other things, he is an environmental activist, and he is a professional swimmer. And so what Louis Pugh does is he finds different parts of the world that are uh, in danger, um, environmentally threatened, and he swims in these extreme places all over the globe. He swam the North Pole, he swam, he, he swam in our Antarctica. I mean, just crazy stuff. And a couple of years ago, Louis Pugh found out that there was this major crisis in, uh, up on top of Mount Everest. The glaciers were melting, and it was affecting the water supply from Mount Everest um, that supplies water to up to 2 billion people in that part of the world. I mean, that's two out of every seven people on the planet Earth. And so he wanted to raise awareness, and so driven by his convictions, he trained to go swim in a lake up at the, at the peak of one of the, the peaks of Mount Everest. It's called um, Lake Pomori. Lake Pomori. And Lake Pomori is at 17,000 feet, and the water is about 35 degrees Fahrenheit. Doctors told Lewis Pugh that the human body cannot submerge itself in water colder than 40 degrees Fahrenheit and last more than 5 to 10 minutes. Doc doctors told him, you will, you'll be dead in 10 minutes. And yet, driven by his convictions, Pugh trained for over a year, and, and a couple of years ago in 2010, he actually made the trek with his team up to Lake Pomori at 17,000 feet and to raise awareness he swam. And doctors told him, you swim up to 10 minutes and you'll be dead. Your heart will stop. The human heart is not designed to, to engage that sort of hypothermia that is going to take over your body. Luz Pugh swam in 35-degree waters, icy glacial waters. He swam a kilometer for 22 minutes and 51 seconds. And he brought about all this awareness and some, some change initiatives have taken, there, have taken place there. Now, the reason I begin with that story is because I want to read for you his response to when people asked him what this experience was like. Louis Pugh says this, 
The water was so cold, my arms and legs began to shut down immediately, but I knew that if I didn't keep moving, my body would shut down completely and I would drown. Very literally, it was sink or swim. Now, the reason I tell you this story is because I want all of us to begin at this place. The reality is God has not placed us on earth to stand on the sidelines and watch as as others participate in his story. God has put every single one of us here on planet earth to jump in. And here is the reality. If you are looking for safe Christianity, if you are looking for a Christianity of luxury and comfort, then you are looking in the wrong place. Because what the Bible tells us about the life God invites us into is anything but safe. Jesus himself invites us to all sorts of crazy things like, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus promises us that the way, the road that leads to eternal life and to his kingdom, he promises us that it is narrow and it is difficult. Over and over, the New Testament invites us into death so that we might be born into new life. And yet, we have sedated this Christianity. And what we often think is that Christianity is about showing up to a comfortable place and feeling safe and feeling good and feeling secure, and feeling surrounded, and feeling loved. And none of those things are wrong. In fact, all of those things are major components to the, to the Christian experience, but it's not complete because we've been invited into a story that is greater, I would bet, than the stories that many of us are living And so in this series, Sink or Swim, we're going to explore some of these ideas. What will it look like for us to say yes to the invitation into this frightening, often daunting, unsafe will of God, the middle of God's will, treacherous waters? How might we not just survive, but thrive there? Uh, There's a story in the Old Testament that I think paints a beautiful picture of this for us. It paints a picture that tells us the truth, the reality that God does not promise us a safe life. He promises us the best life. Uh, I love this quote from one of my favorite theologians named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He said, being a Christian is not about cautiously avoiding sin. It is about actively and courageously doing the will of God. There's this Old Testament story that I think paints that exact picture for us. It's a story you know. It's a story of David and Goliath. Right, and some of you are like, oh, it's like kids' church all over again. Little David, giant Goliath, and he kills him with a little stone. But tonight, I don't want to explore the story of David killing Goliath. We all know how the story ends. I want to take a look at what leads up to that grand moment in the story. And this is, so the story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 17. You can turn there. Now, as you turn to 1 Samuel 17, let me just paint the picture for you. The Israelites, God's chosen nation, they are in war with the Philistines. 
right? The Israelites and the Philistines are at war. They are battling over some land. And every single day for 40 days, the Philistine army marches out this one guy whose name is Goliath. He's a giant of a man. He's a killing machine. You all saw it on the flannel board or in VeggieTales or whatever when you were growing up. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, you know this story, right? This giant killing machine walks down into the valley. He looks up at the Israelite army day in and day out, twice a day in fact, and he yells at them and he says, send me your best man. Just one guy, just send me your best, and your best guy and I will fight. And if I win, the Philistines take the land. If you win, the Israelites will take the land. Very simple, very clean. And every single day for over a month, the Israelite army in their armor, with their weapons, looking like soldier warriors, stand at the hillside trembling, and they do nothing. And into that story comes rushing this little boy, and he is a boy. You must remember this. He's a little boy at this point in the story. He will go on to become king, but at this point in the story, he's just a little kid. And he comes rushing into the story to bring his brothers, who are soldiers in the Israelite army, he brings them some food. He's delivering lunch. He's a lunch delivery shepherd boy. And here is how the story goes. After David, the little shepherd boy, hears about what is happening, this is what he says. This is 1 Samuel 17, verses 32 to 37. David said to Saul, who was king of Israel at the time, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you are not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And here is the key. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. There is this giant killing machine challenging an entire nation's army day in and day out, and not a single soldier wants to march down and fight him. And this little shepherd boy delivering lunch to his brothers comes up to the king of the nation, and he says, hey, check it out. I'll go fight him. Seems like no one else wants to fight him. I will fight him. And he's a boy, and so he does what boys do. When the king says, no, I mean, are you kidding me? He's a killing machine. You're just a little kid. He does what boys do. He dreams huge, and he says, well, okay, check it this one time. I was watching my dad's sheep, and there was a lion, and I punched it in the face. <laughs> this other time, just, just listen, this other time, this bear... Okay, this grizzly bear came, came over and he tried to take my dad's sheep. And I was like, uh-uh, bear, I ain't scared. And I punched it in the face. And, and it went away. Right, he tells these crazy, insane, unbelievable stories like little boys do. And the, and the weird thing is, David believes this stuff. Right? And then Saul, the grown-up in the story, 
does what most grown-ups do. He says, oh, okay, yeah, go. <laughs> he just like lets him go. He like just believes this little kid and his stories. But here's the key. I believe that most of us think that there are courageous people, there are cowardly people, and then there are the rest of us in between. And we look at the courageous people and we think, oh man, I aspire to be like them, to be a courageous person. And we look at the cowards and we think, yeah, at least I'm not like them. And we live, we live comfortably. We sit, live, and exist comfortably in this safe little bubble where we allow our hearts to get inspired by the courageous, and we get to, we get to lift ourselves up as we push down the, the cowardly. But here's what I know to be true. There's no such thing as a courageous person. Courage is not a talent or a skill. Courage is not a natural gift. Courage is not a personality trait. Here is what I have learned, and here is what I know from the Scriptures about courage. What looks like courage in the end always begins as conviction at the start. What looks like courage in the end to everybody else, oh, look at that person, so courageous. What looks like courage in the end always begins as conviction at the start. What we see in David's story is that when fear is, is staring him in the face, when the giant is in the valley staring him in the face, it's not because he's brave it's not because David is courageous. He doesn't say, well, listen, everybody else is a coward, but I'm brave, so I'll fight him. What David says is, here is what I know to be true. God has shown himself faithful, and I have a conviction in my heart that the God who has been with me is with me now, and he will go before me into the valley, and I will slay the giant. David is driven not by courage or bravery. He is driven by conviction. And it is that conviction that compels David to action. And when he acts, God moves in his life in ways that are unthinkable. He slays the giant. And then the rest of us look at the end of the story and we say, what courage. What looks like courage in the end always begins as conviction at the start. David's conviction leads him to action, and the action results in courage. Courage is not a gift or a skill. There are no courageous people. There are only those who make the decision to act upon their convictions and those who don't. And so, who are we going to be? Lewis Pugh says something really interesting about the swim that he made up at Mount Everest. He says that it taught him one thing, and it was this. He says, it taught me that there is nothing more powerful than the made-up mind. Isn't that cool? There is nothing more powerful than the made-up mind. You see, David made up his mind. 
For him, it didn't matter that the rest of the Israelite army was trembling in their boots. For David, he was driven by this conviction that God was with him and for him and that the the nation of Israel was God's chosen people. And with that conviction, he marched. He made up his mind to march and to face the giant head on when nobody else would. Ralph Waldo Emerson, um, the writer and poet, he once said this, The wise man in the story prays to God, not for safety from danger, but for deliverance from fear. When was the last time you prayed that way? When's the last time you prayed not that God would change your circumstances or fix the problem or pull you out of the mess that you are in, but when is the last time you prayed, God, it doesn't matter what mess I am in. My prayer is that you wouldn't deliver me from this, that the, the stuff, the circumstances, the situations. My prayer, God, is that you would deliver me from fear, that I would not be afraid anymore. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, many of you were here, and Bob Goff told that story about his friend Charlie in Uganda. And and I've heard that story many, many times. And I got to tell you, Every time, he, every time Bob tells that story, and he talks about how when Charlie was dying in that field, and Bob asks him, what were you thinking when you were dying, laying, dying in that field? What kept you going? It, it, Bob, Bob says that Charlie responded, I kept thinking over and over again, God loves me, and I'm not afraid. Every time I hear that, I just like have to walk out of the room. <laughs> You know why? Because I'm a coward. I'm a coward. And it's not because I was born a coward. Like I said, there there are no courageous people and cowardly people. I live into cowardice. That's what I mean. I mean, let's just be honest about who we are. The other day, uh, I got home, and uh, my, wife, uh, my wife and I got home. She looks down on the floor, and she goes, oh, spider, right? It's like a typical thing in our house, like, ah, oh, spider. And, you know, that's my job as a husband, right? Men, if you are not married yet, just know that when you get married, you will become a spider killer professionally. Uh, many of you already are. So I'm a professional spider killer, right? It's like, ah, oh, spider, I got to kill it. Okay, but in addition to being a spider killer, I am also a cheapskate. And so the thing nearest to me was our paper towel rack. And for those of you who are like living at home, you don't understand. Paper towels are stinking expensive, okay? They're really expensive. So I'm thinking to myself, I can't let this spider get away. The closest thing to me is this paper towel rack, but I don't want to use an entire piece of paper towel. It just seems like an inefficient use of an expensive item, right? And so I thought, okay, I'm just going to rip off a little piece. So I tore off, but I'm like rushing here because the spider's going to get away. So I tore off a little piece, but the piece I tore off was like way too small. It was like that, you know? It was like, oh, and then I like rushed to get the spider and I grabbed it, but the the piece of paper towel that I had ripped off was so small, the spider like got out. It's crawling all over my hand. And you know, like my wife and I have been together, right? Marriage and dating for over 10 years, but I still want to impress her. So on the inside, I'm like freaking out, like, oh my gosh, right? I'm going to die. But, but on the outside, I'm trying to play cool. And she's like, oh, it's on your hand. I'm like, it's all right, honey. Don't worry about it. You know, but I'm like on the inside, I'm like, oh, right? So like, I have this tension on the outside. I'm trying to be cool. On the inside, I'm dying. So I'm like, right? Like, I'm like so tense. And I finally kill it. 
And I squish it, and my paper towel is so small, like all the guts and entrails are like hanging off my finger, right? I'm like, oh my gosh, right? I'm all shaky. I go to the bathroom, I throw it away. My wife's like, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> you know, like trying to be really cool, wash my hand. And you know, you know, like when you get something gross like that on your hand, even after you like thoroughly wash, you just still feel it. And so like the rest of the night, I was like, ah, right? It's just like feeling really gross. That's me. This is me. We're not even talking about like God's will for my life. We're talking about a spider in my house. But this is representative of who I am. I want to tell you that I'm fine. I want to portray to you that I'm in control. But the reality is when, if you were to open me up and see the trueness of my heart, I am an anxious, nervous, insecure, highly sensitive person. I just started reading this book called Highly Sensitive People. Ryan and I were talking on the phone the other day. We have a lot of phone meetings. And out of nowhere, I don't know why this came, I was like, hey, I think I'm really sensitive, dude. <laughs> and he goes we're all sensitive, man. I was like, no, I think I'm like really sensitive. <laughs> there was like this weird conversation, right? But like, this is me. This is who I am. And I'm revealing all of it to you because it is so freeing because the reality is most of us in this room live life that way. You live like a an afraid, fearful, insecure individual. But the reality is God is for you and he is with you. He is as with you as he was with David and when the giants of your life are taunting you in the valley, if you would let the conviction that God is with you and for you lead you into action, you might find that at the end of that story, you are more courageous than you've ever known. This is truth. Courage is not a natural thing inside of you. It is a discovery. And you only discover courage if you say yes by your convictions to whatever it is God is inviting you into. Now, you might say, well, that's not me. I mean, that sounds really good, but that's not me. When I hear guys like Bob Goff, and he's like, oh, love does. Go change the world. Become the consul to Uganda. Start a nonprofit. Bless witch doctors. Change the world. You can do it. I'm like, yeah. I'm going to buy your book, right? <laughs> right? He's like, go, just do it. You're like, just change the world in the name of Jesus. I'm like, woohoo. Sign my book. I bought it for $15. Took a picture with Bob, me and Bob, right? Twitter, everyone see? I saw Bob once. And then it just ends there. It's like I read, the, I read his book. It's like really inspiring stories. I read it in the comfort of my home, doing nothing. And then afterwards I was like, it was awesome. And then that was it. And this is us. We stand on the ledge of the valley looking the part while others march into the valley changing the world. You have a choice. God has invited you. God has invited you not to watch but to participate. And here's the deal. God has invited you as you are. 
There's a part of this story that's really interesting to me. It's 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 38 to 40. This is after David has told Saul, okay, I'm going to go kill this giant, this, this giant Goliath. And Saul says, okay, yeah, do that. Here's what happens. Verses 38 to 40. Saul dressed David in his own tunic. Saul put on a coat of armor on David and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried to walk around because he was not used to them. And then David says to Saul, I cannot go in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in hand, approached the Philistine. And you know how the story ends. He doesn't need all five stones. David says, I don't need the armor. I don't need the oversized helmet. I don't need your giant sword or your royal tunic. I don't, that's not me. You see, common sense, logic would tell you, well, okay, if you're going to kill this giant, he's got this giant spear and a sword and a shield and some armor and a helmet, you too should take a spear and a sword and a shield and armor and a helmet. That's what common sense would tell you. And that's what common sense tells us. Well, I can't change the world. I'm not Bob Goff. I can't bring people to Jesus. I'm not a pastor. I can't share about the truth of the gospel. I didn't go to seminary. That's not me. That's for the the Christian professionals to do, right? I can't mend that relationship. I'm, I'm too young. I can't try to mend this brokenness in my family. They won't listen to me. And here's the deal. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be nervous. There's this really beautiful story in the Gospels that tells us about a man named Jesus who turns out to be God himself. But before he proves that to the world, there's this other picture of Jesus. He's in a garden called Gethsemane, and he's about to be arrested and crucified, and he prays this prayer. And it is not a prayer of courage. It's a prayer of fear and anxiety. He's so anxious that it tells us that he starts sweating blood. He prays to God. He says, God, Father, listen, I know that this is why I'm here on earth, but if there is another way to do this, let's do that. Like, I just don't, let's figure out something else. Jesus prayed that prayer. But here's the beautiful part. What starts as fear ends as conviction. And Jesus prays, but not my will, your will be done. And then he goes to the cross, gets buried in a grave, and on Sunday, crushes sin and death. Courage. Begins as conviction and it reveals itself to be courage. And so David, like you and I, is totally unprepared. And he just goes like himself. It's like, eh, I don't need the I don't need the sword, I don't need the armor, 
I got my sling. I used to nail some of my sheep with it for practice. <laughs> I got a mean little, I got a mean curve on this, on this bad boy. He just goes as himself. And you guys know how the story ends. Because here's the deal. We are called into the center of God's will at this very moment, just as we are. God is calling you into the center of his will for your life, just as you are. God is not intent on changing us before we follow. He changes us because we follow. If you are waiting for God to make you into a person that you think might be able to change the world, you are going to wait forever. Because the change will only happen if and when we say, yes, I'm in. I'm in. When conviction leads us to action, what we find is that the walk from the hillside into the depths of the valley to face the giant, it is on that journey that we are changed. And so if conviction should lead to action, which results in courage, then what ought our conviction be? Joshua chapter 1 verse 9 says this, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. In 1 Chronicles 28, David, much later in his life when he's king, he's talking to his son Solomon and he says this, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged. For the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. The courage required to live in the dangerous middle of God's will always begins with the conviction that God is with us and for us. That was true for David. It is true for anybody you have ever heard of who has ever changed the world in the name of Jesus. It begins with the conviction that God is for you and not against you and that he is with you. That he is with you. C.S. Lewis says, God can't give us peace and happiness apart from himself because there is no such thing. When I was a kid, uh, I got invited. I was really young. I got invited to a, a birthday party at Raging Waters. And uh, I don't know if you know where Raging Waters is. Those of you who aren't from around here, it's just a water park, um, and they got all these water slides and stuff. And so I was really little. And here's, here's the weird thing. My mom actually let me go. Uh, I don't know if she knew exactly what Raging Waters was because I didn't know how to swim at the time. But my mom was like, yeah, sounds good. Go, do that. And so I went to this birthday party at Raging Waters. And uh, at Raging Waters, I haven't been there in years, so I don't know if they still have it, but they had this one part of the park where it was like the ledge and then all this water, almost like a little lake type thing, and then a little island in the middle. And then they had these ropes that would go from the ledge to the island, right? So you would just kind of hang off and like pull yourself over to the island. Some kids would, you know, fall in because you lose your grip. You're like, yeah, yeah, 
yeah, whatever, it's super fun. Okay, so all my friends are on this little thing, and they're like, let's go to the island. We're like, yeah, and so we do it. All my friends are like pulling themselves across the rope. Some of them fall in and swim over. So all my friends are on this island, and here I am standing on the ledge. And what do you do when you're a kid? You're like, well, I got to get to my friends. It doesn't matter if I don't know how to swim. I'm not even thinking that way, right? And so I jump up, grab the rope, and I'm pulling myself across. And at a certain point, I lose my grip. I fall into the water. And it is in that moment that I have this brilliant epiphany. I can't swim. (laughs) So I'm like flailing my arms and my legs all around. And somehow, some way, I got to the ledge. I got back to the ledge, and so I take my hands, and I grip the, the edges, and I pull myself up, and I don't know if it's still like this, but at Raging Waters, they have these like rubber smoothed off edges so that you don't slip, and I guess it's like probably like super good traction for your feet, but when it's wet, it's not good for pulling yourself up by the hands, and plus I'm little, right? I got no strength in my arms, and so I grab the edge, and I pull myself up, and I get some breath, and I'm like, I'm going to make it, and then I slip. And this happens over and over. I'm pulling myself up and I slip. And every time I slip, I'm thinking to myself, this is it. Life is over. It's been a great run of six years. I've done so much. I was born. I ate. I pooped. I played with toys. And now I will die, right? Like, I was like, what a story. What a life. And I'm pulling myself up over and over. I still distinctly remember at a certain point as I was underwater thinking to myself, man, I'm going to miss my mom. I remember I was so distraught. I actually thought I was going to die. And then what felt like the hands of God himself (laughs) came. And ladies, stay composed. It was like the hottest lifeguard guy I have ever seen in my life. Just ripped and like, he just like his massive manly hands under my armpits, under my little six-year-old armpits, and he grabs me out of the water, right? And so like, he's like pulling me out and I'm like, Right? Like, just like the water is trickling off me slow mo. I'm like the child of the promise. I'm like, yeah! Right? And it's like this Lion King moment. He's all, yeah! And all the animals are singing. And it was like, it's like this chorus. And Elton John was there. It was nuts. <laughs> and then he pulls me down. And he's like, are you all right, bro? Like, do you forget? I almost just died. What do you think I am? No, not okay. But I looked at his face and I just thought, you are Yahweh, right? Like at that moment in my life, I know that's heresy, you know, don't write that on your comment cards. I don't actually believe that lifeguard is God or anything. But in that moment, in my six-year-old mind, this is how I felt. I was like, this is, you're like an angel, right? I just wanted to hug it. I mean, I was like, wow. You're like the greatest man I've ever known is what I was thinking. Here's the deal. The entire day I had spent at Raging Waters and not once had I noticed that there were lifeguards. Not once. In my little six-year-old mind, it didn't dawn on me that lifeguards had to be there. I didn't notice a single lifeguard, but in that moment of rescue, it hit me. He was the most important thing. He was the most important thing in my entire day. 
God will take you. God will take you to deep waters if that is what it takes to remind you that he is with you and he is for you. Here's my challenge and my hope for us. When God takes you to deep waters to remind you of your dependence and reliance on him alone, let him take you there. Because you will come up out of the water changed. And you will see life for what it truly is. That God has a story for you. And that God has invited you to participate in his kingdom that is changing the world. And that no matter how large and how impossible the giant in the valley may be, God is bigger. God is bigger. He loves you. He is with you. He is for you. He will never leave you. He will never fail you. He will never let you down. He will never let you go. He will never let you go. Let me pray for us. God, we trust in you. Those words are way easier for us to say or sing than they are for us to live. But we begin tonight with what we have, and what we have are our words. And so we say, God, we trust in you. And we invite you to make those words such a deep reality in our hearts and lives that we begin living with conviction and stop living out of fear. That the conviction of the truth that you are with us, that you are for us and not against us, would lead us into action, to saying yes to whatever it is you are inviting us into, and then to see on the back end of that story how you have brought about courage in our lives. Move in us and change us. Make us new. We trust in you, Jesus. Amen.